Tonight, then, for the study, we want to get into 2 Corinthians 12, and we want to look at visions and revelations. We want to talk about the Apostle Paul in the first 12 verses, and I hope this speaks to all of us as we look into this, but let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to have an opportunity to fellowship with the saints we consider it a privilege every time we can have a midweek service and get together and sit under the teaching of the Word of God. We ask you to give us ears to hear. Let our hearts be receptive. May our hearts be fertile ground for the Word that is planted. We pray there's a great harvest in our lives of all of these spiritual seeds that are planted. Speak to us, talk to us, lead us, guide us, help us to learn to live with your presence. And Father, we're going to be careful to praise you forever and ever. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12. And this is Paul, and listen to what he says in verse 1. It is not expedient... Or, that is to say, profitable for me, doubtless to glory or to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then I want you to come down to verse 6. For though I would desire to glory or boast, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear or refrain, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be, or that he hears of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. All of us know that the Bible is filled with people that had visions and dreams Sometimes people had these visions while they were awake. Sometimes people had dreams, of course, while they were sleeping. Jacob dreamt while he was asleep. He and Joseph had many dreams. Joseph could interpret dreams, as could Daniel. But I want you to know that a vision is God breaking into our atmosphere and allowing us to see what we ordinarily could not see. That is to say, when Peter went to the top of the house and he was praying, and the Bible says he fell into a trance, his natural senses and his bodily motions were suspended. But God opened up his eyes to be able to see something he would not have ordinarily been able to see. Another way to describe it would be when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. You remember the Bible says that Moses and Elijah appeared to him. Now, according to the Bible, Elijah went to heaven in a chariot. And we know that Moses had passed away just before he got to the promised land. And he went to glory. So on that mountaintop when Jesus prayed, God opened up some kind of portal he made it possible for them to pass from the other side onto that mountain in order to be able to communicate to Jesus. Because the Bible says they both spoke to him regarding his death in Jerusalem that was supposed to come. 
So people in the Bible have had visions. Paul had a vision on the road to Damascus. And then Ananias had a vision and went and laid hands on Paul and told him about the calling of God that was on his life and what he was anointed to do. When we think of revelations, though, Paul speaks of revelations as uh, eye-opening experiences with God where the Lord shows us teachings and truths that maybe we've never seen or understood before. Paul speaks of the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ. That's a revelation. When Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5 the relationship of a man and a woman in marriage, and he describes it as Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride, that's a revelation. And if you've ever picked up the Bible and started reading verses of Scripture, and then you read something and you say, oh my goodness, I never even knew that was in there, and that meant that. That's a revelation. And it's God the Holy Spirit that opens up your eyes and illumines your heart to be able to receive the light of God's Word. Now, all the years I've been preaching, and as much as I teach each week, it's hardly a time that I don't open up this Bible, read the same story that I've read a hundred times before, and don't come away with thinking, oh my goodness, God put another scripture in there last night. And I didn't even know that was in there. That happens to me quite often. And sometimes when I'm looking at a story or telling the story, even while I'm up teaching sometimes, God will show me something else, another angle, another perspective that I'd never seen before, but it's now coming to me as I'm standing up and I'm teaching. When Paul says here in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 12, he's coming to visions and revelations, this was fast on the heels of what was stated at the end of chapter 11. Down in chapter 11, he gives his pedigree. And he explains his experiences. He's telling the people in verse 24 about his ministry, how five times he received 39 stripes. That'd be a terrible way to be beaten. But that happened to him five times. He talked about how three times he was beaten with rods. Well, the Romans had these official uh, people who were used for punishment. They were called lictors, L-I-C-T-O-R-S. And, and these people had special rods that were used to penalize someone who was found guilty of something. Now, our modern equivalent would be what still goes on in Pakistan and some other countries where they call it caning. And maybe some of you remember about 15 years ago, we had an American student went over there, got in trouble, did some bad things, and he was sentenced to be caned. That's what it's talking about. They rip the, the uh, shirt off your back, put you in a position just like this, and with that rod, then they just start laying it on. Well, Paul says here in chapter 11, verse 25, that... He was beaten with rods three times. One time he was stoned. We have the record of that in the book of Acts. And they thought he had died. Now there's not a person in here that, that hasn't ever picked up a rock and skipped it across a pond or maybe even threw a rock at a target or a tree. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of people throwing rocks at you, it's nothing pretty at all and it certainly, certainly doesn't feel good. When I lived in Jordan and used to walk back and forth to the Arabic school, the little Muslim kids knew that me and my roommate were Christian, 
And there were several times walking up that hill, them Muslim kids would stand alongside the road and just chuck stones at us because they knew there wasn't too much we could do being in a, a village filled with Muslims. Well, Paul is saying here that he was stoned three times he was shipwrecked a night and a day he was drifting in the waters in the seas that's a long time yeah that that's a long time i i i try i try to imagine some of this stuff and then i I think about stories i used to hear when i was in the military now, there was a true story that certainly was in circulation when I was in the Marine Corps that we used to hear from the navies. But years ago, when they made that movie Jaws, they had an old, old mariner or ship captain who was telling a story about uh, something that was true. Most people thought in the movie it was just a, a, a lie or fiction, but he was telling about how uh, he was one of those soldiers or sailors that were on a vessel and they were in the middle of the war, and then their ship was torpedoed and bombed, and hundreds of them were out there floating in the ocean in the middle of the night for up to three days. You may have heard of that. Now, you, 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 you know, it's dark out here, but if you've got cloud cover and you're in the ocean and you don't have any starlight or moonlight, it's pitch black out there. And so you got people treading water or holding on to whatever they're holding on if they got a life jacket and everybody's conversing with one another. He goes on and tells the story about how all these people are floating in the water and then suddenly you just hear somebody scream and then silence because the sharks were coming one by one and just grabbing people and snatching them under. So when Paul talks about spending a night and a day in the deep, he's been out there for some time. And here's a man that's given his life for the gospel. And he says in verse 26 that he's been in all of these difficulties in the water and amongst robbers, amongst his own countrymen, amongst pagan people, in the wilderness, in the sea, amongst false brethren. He says in weariness, painfulness, watchings often, he was hungry, thirsty, fasted when he was hungry, fasted when he wanted to fast, in cold and in nakedness. He goes through all of this explaining what ministry means for him. And when we come to chapter 12, it's at this point that he says, now, having gone through all of that, I'll come to these visions and these revelations because visions bring ecstasy. And visions bring encouragement. And maybe you've had one before. I imagine all of us have had revelations of the word when, as I said, you read the Bible, then you realize, oh my goodness, that's in there? That's what that means? And God is talking to us. But if you've gone to sleep before or been awake and thought you were daydreaming and, and, and suddenly you had a vision that you believe was from the king, then you know how, how that causes you to feel, especially if, if the presence of God is attending that vision. So Paul either is telling us about himself in verses 2 through 4, or he's telling us about somebody that he knows. But in either case, the relationship of the gentleman <coughs> or himself who, he, who he's describing, you can see in verse 2, somebody's caught up to the third heaven, and he says, I can't tell whether it was bodily or not. So he's saying, I don't know if this was a dream or vision or really caught up there. And then verse 4, he talks about somebody being caught up to paradise. 
Now, we don't have another record in the Bible of a place called third heaven, but we do have records in the Bible of places called heaven. We do have another place where paradise is spoken of because the man who was hanging on the cross with Jesus, he said, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So we know that paradise and we know that heaven, according to the language here, is a place to which a person is caught up. And it's likely they're synonymous, just describing a place where the presence of God is. But it's interesting that what he heard in verse 4, he said whatever he heard in heaven, it's not even lawful for the human to even repeat. Now, I've met a number of people who've had visions of going to heaven. I've had one myself, but I, I've, I've met a number of people who have told me that some of the things that they saw, it's near impossible for them to describe in their native language because they've said there are colors over there that you can't even really describe down here because everything down here is touched by sin. So I'm sure on the other side, there's a color green that's a lot more vibrant and a lot more vivid than the green we see down here in the grass and in some of the flowers. And I'm sure that the red that you see in beautiful uh, rose petals, and they look nice down here. But I guarantee you on the other side, God's got some vegetation that really looks good. And, and, you, and you know when you read the book of Revelation, you've got John trying to describe some of these things that he sees. And it, it seems to me sometimes he's at a loss for words. Something that looks like it's got a lion's head and a locust's body and a bottomless pit and smoke ascending up out of it. And he's talking about uh, animals with a scorpion's tail that can sting. He did the best he could with whatever language he had so that we would understand exactly what it was that he was seeing. But as we can see here in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, some of these things are inexpressible. Inexpressible. It's like going to a doctor when you have a pain in your body and they say something like this. On a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain level? And, of course, you're already at 18, you know. And, and you know, and for them, a person in the ER or a person in the hospital, they usually see people when they're at their worst. Now, normally people are better when they're leaving, but when they get there, they look pretty bad. And they're dealing with pain and problems and sickness all the time. So... You know, some people say eight, and what's an eight for one person might be a two for somebody else, might be a nine for somebody else. But when it comes to these things right here, it is hard to really explain this stuff, you know. And Paul says, the man or woman that's been caught up and seen some things like this, because he said, I knew somebody 14 years ago who, who was caught up to glory, he said, that kind of a person I'll boast and, and I'll glory in, in verse 5. But he said, I also, I will glory in my infirmities. I'm not going to glory in myself. I'll glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses. He said, I would rather think about my defects, my flaws, and my weaknesses rather than spend my time boasting about how wonderful I am. And we need to be careful. If, if God ever gives you a wonderful experience, don't let that experience cause you to believe you're an angel. 
Because if you, if you start thinking that way, then you're going to end up deceived. The Bible says the one that believes that he's standing, take heed lest you fall. And any of us in here who, who've ever had tied the knot been married know that even if we think we're angels, all we have to do is ask our spouse. Yeah, our spouse has some, has, some, has some things they can say about us that aren't so angelic. And, and even if we think we've got a halo over our head, the spouse will say, no, it's not quite what you think there. Yeah, not quite what you think. So verse 6, notice what Paul says. So he says, although I would want to boast, I'm not going to be a fool. But I'll say the truth. And, and I'll refrain lest anybody should think of me above that which they see me to be. Now, let me explain what this means. I've heard people teach the Bible sometimes where they'll spend three minutes teaching a scripture and then they'll spend 50 minutes explaining a revelation they received in their prayer closet or vision that they had. And if a person talks about their visions and revelations enough, eventually people will indirectly think this, this man, this woman is superhuman. I mean, they're, they're not even regular like us. Well, that's, that's the smokescreen. That's the deception. Paul was a man who had visions and dreams, and God used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament, but he still was a person just like you and me, and that's what verse 11 or chapter 11 is all about. He knew what it was to deal with the flu, the cold. He knew what it was to bleed. He knew what it was to have a swollen part of his body. He knew what it was to be left for dead and people happy that he was dying. He knew what it was like to be robbed. But Paul did go on to say, just so people wouldn't think that I'm such a wonderful person and I'm so powerful and that I am angelic, he said, verse 7, that lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So he had a lot of them. And you can read of some of them in Ephesians, Galatians, and Colossians, and Philippians. But lest I should be exalted, he said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, sometimes people wonder what that thorn is. They'll say things like, well, God made him sick. Well, some people say, well, he must have had a problem with his eyes because of a statement he made in Galatians when he told the Galatians, you were with me in my infirmity. But it's not saying that God gave him a sickness. Or that God gave him a disease. In fact, verse 7 tells us what the thorn in his flesh was. The messenger of Satan to buffet him. See, so you have the sentence, the thorn in the flesh. And then you have a comma. And then you have another sentence. So that, that, that second sentence in English grammar stands in opposition to the preceding sentence. That means it just simply expands what was already formally stated. So wherever Paul went, he had to fight the devil. And that's why his life was filled with troubles and burdens. Because God was making sure that this man remained humble. Now you, you may read the book of Acts and think that is just too much for one man to have to deal with. Because he goes to Ephesus, he ends up having to deal with a riot. He's in Philippi, he ends up in jail. It just seems like he goes from one problem to the next problem. But if you're going to walk with God as he did, 
and see the things that he saw and know the things that he knew, you've got to understand you're going to be a target for the devil. Yeah, going to be a target. And, and Satan didn't go easy on Paul. And I'm, I'm willing to bet Satan's not going easy on you. No, he's not going easy on you. You, you probably have had to face some, some issues in your life and you've, you've wondered why in the world am I having to battle this? Why am I having to deal with this? Is there anybody else that's dealing with this or not dealing with this? Why is it just me? Well, it's not just you. We all have issues. And anybody who's, any lady who's ever gone to a woman's meeting or any guy who's ever gone to a men's meeting knows that men and women have all kinds of issues that they're dealing with and the devil is constantly fighting them. There's a battle continually that rages because that old nature in us is filled with appetites for things that are not always godly. And Satan's been keeping tabs on every single one of us since we were kids. So he knows what your weaknesses and what my weaknesses are. And he goes out of his way to try to create circumstances and events around us that will pull out that old nature and pull out that old man. Yeah. And this is how he fights us. This is how he buffets us. He attacks us. He's swinging at us. And, and um, the thing is, the man or woman that's constantly battling condemnation and guilt and shame have a, has a hard time being used by God because you never, ever feel worthy. You see, this is why we need to know the difference between the conviction that comes from the Holy Ghost and the condemnation that comes from the devil. If God the Holy Ghost convicts you of doing wrong, he is always going to point you back to Calvary and show you how to find forgiveness and tell you to get back up, get up on that horse and get to ride and we've got the gospel to proclaim. The devil, on the other hand, he'll condemn you and then tell you, I told you you were worthless and you've been trying to overcome this for 32 years and you still haven't overcome it. And why don't you just give up this whole thing of trying to be a Christian and trying to be a light and trying to witness and talk to people about God. And a lot of people do. They just sit down and they just stop. But that's not the plan. If you are a target for the devil, then our answer is to, is to understand that he is the one attacking us. But God wants us to humble ourselves and submit to him. Not to the devil. Never to the devil. Never. So humility is the key then. Paul needed humility. He probably isn't too happy with the manner in which he's having to receive humility, but it's necessary. Because anybody who's going to have a ministry where they're leading a lot of people to Christ or praying for a lot of sick people that are being made whole, or seeing dramatic things take place in the ministry, you can easily get puffed up, you know. Now, Billy Graham, I don't know how many people that man led to Christ. They say he's probably preached to more people on planet Earth face-to-face in auditoriums and stuff like that than anybody in the, in the history of the world. But... I heard him on an interview one time and they were asking him if he could go back over his life and do some things over. What would he do differently? And he said, well, I probably would have spent a little bit more time in prayer. He said, I probably would have tried to be home for my wife and my kids a little more. You know, older age gives you 
2020 vision. You know, you kind of look back and in hindsight helps you to see things a lot clearer than you could ever see them when, the, when you were young. Uh, John Stott, who was a pastor in England at All Souls Church for about 30 years, very popular evangelical pastor, every bit as popular as Billy Graham over there. <clears throat> but I heard him one time in a, in a teaching, and, and they were asking him when he was in his late 80s if he could go back and do anything different, what would he do? He said, I probably would spend more time reading the Bible. He said, I traveled so much, very often I had to preach the same sermons over and over again. He said, I spend more time reading the Bible, and he said, I probably would spend more time in prayer. Well, when, when God's using you and doing things for you in your life and you're successful, it's easy to forget who it is that brought the success. Think of all the people who have started from the bottom, worked their way to the top, received one promotion after another, maybe became excessively wealthy, but let's just say moderately uh, abundantly supplied in that way so that all their needs are met. It's easy to get into circumstances like that where you forget who it is that brought you to where you were. And once we forget, that's when the devil finds an open door and he starts attacking because he sees the pride. He sees the arrogance. <clears throat> he sees the haughtiness. So verse 7 again, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. So Satan had a special demon for Paul, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. So again, humility. Why is humility important for us that are Christians? Because it's probably the best of all virtues. I mean, probably right alongside wisdom, I would say. Most people would say love, but I, I, I'd say wisdom being one of the highest. And then right next to it, I put humility. Because with humility, you live a life that you walk consistently. Because you're not trying to promote yourself. You're not trying to be the best. But, but humility also... It loves graciously, lavishly. A humble person is going to love any and everybody. That's a humble person. But then also it forgives. Humility is willing to forgive people of a lot of things because humility means I am humbling myself under the mighty hand of God and in due season I'll be exalted. So we spend our time down here in order for us to be promoted up here. So we humble ourselves by praying. We humble ourselves by obeying the word of God. We humble ourselves by allowing our hearts to be stirred and affected by Scripture. You know, as the old folks used to say, it's hard to stumble when you're always on your knees. See, it's true. We, we, we humble ourselves to God. But... Paul says in verse 8, he didn't necessarily like this battle he was fighting. And he went to God three times and said, Lord, deliver me from this. And this is one of these instances where God said, no, somebody's prayer. If you're looking for another instance, I think somewhere in the beginning part of Deuteronomy, maybe Deuteronomy 5, 
Moses kept praying to God, saying, Lord, let me go into the promised land. Finally, the Lord said, don't ask me again. I told you, no, you're not going in. So there are times when we may be praying for something and the king is just like, no, you're you're not going to have that because what you want is not necessarily what you need. And God sees Paul. He knows Paul's attitude. He knows his temperament. He knows his personality and he knows he needs to fight this battle. And he's got to resist the devil every day of his life. God knows he has that. God knows your strengths, he knows mine, he knows your weaknesses, he knows mine. Let's suppose somebody was a good trumpet player, and then they gave their heart to the Lord. Well, there are some preachers that would tell them, <clears throat> you know what, you, you played that trumpet for a lot of years and made a whole lot of money, you need to go back into that environment, keep using that gift that you have, and keep playing that trumpet touching a whole lot of people but that may not be the answer at all because if playing that trumpet was the source of his pride or her pride or his arrogance or her arrogance when that person comes to christ and they lay it all down at the altar what that means is you may never pick up a trumpet again because if that trumpet is what's going to bring out of you that kind of spirit that the lord says is now crucified in christ you got to be willing to walk away from it yeah. Stephen Fox was a half Japanese, half English gentleman who introduced rock and roll to Japan back in the 70s and 80s. And he was playing to some big venues and auditoriums, thousands of people coming out listening to him as basically he just imitated what he saw over here in America sex drugs and all that stuff and sang about it and i mean them little japanese kids were going crazy over him he was the number one artist with his group had a group called go diego they were the number one group all throughout japan but he's playing to these crowds involved with illicit stuff and and everything somebody came along and witnessed to him and told him about jesus lo and behold he became a christian So he was talking with some pastors, asking whether or not he ought to get out of this uh, lifestyle. And those pastors told him, absolutely not. They said, you stay right there where you are in that industry. You try to reach as many people as you can. Well, he did that, and it all fell apart because here he was doing these concerts with all of these bad lyrics and all of this stuff. And then at the end of the, the concert, he and his band would pass out Bibles in the crowd. And they're giving Bibles away, and he's out there trying to tell people why they need to turn towards Jesus. And this went on for months as he was doing this. And finally, one young man said to him in the crowd there as he was passing out that stuff, he said, I, I don't understand why it is that you want me to read your Bible that you're giving to me. It hadn't changed your life. You're up there singing about all the things that I enjoy, and you haven't turned away from any of that. You're inflaming all these passions in us with all this stuff that you're singing. And so he went to another preacher, and another preacher told him, you stay right there in that industry. Well, he was miserable, absolutely miserable. So he heard about David Wilkerson. 
So he, he decides to make his way to America down to Lindale, Texas, where Mr. Wilkerson had his offices and wanted to talk with him. And he came in and told David Wilkerson everything I told you about how he met with some preachers. And some preachers told him, stay in that industry. Keep trying to be a witness and a light to all of those folks in the, in the rock and roll crowd. And, and Brother Wilkerson just looked at him and said, well, when you came to Jesus, you asked him to be Lord and Savior and master of your life. At that point, you died. You were crucified in Christ. That means the world was crucified to you. All the only thing that has happened is you found some compromising preachers who told you to go back into a world that never is going to be reached by you as long as you're doing the exact same things they're doing. But what you need to do is go back to your band and tell them you're a Christian now and you're shutting everything down and you're going to reach the world by telling them about Jesus and the gospel. Well, he said, well, I got a wife and kids. How am I going to make any money? He said, well, you said you believe the Lord wants you to tell people about Jesus. I guess you're just going to have to trust God and see whether or not he can take care of you. So sure enough, he went back to his band, had a meeting with them. They were all sitting in a, like a horseshoe type setting. And he said, you guys know I've become a Christian. I talked with a minister and got some what I believe godly counsel. So we're going to have to just, you know, end the band. And the guys were sitting there looking down at the floor and they finally looked up and they said, I wondered, we wondered how long we were going to have to continue in this hypocrisy. Us up here on stage singing all this stuff and then trying to get Bibles to people asking them to live a life that we ourselves weren't living. Well, he walked away from that, and Wilkerson and them took up a big offer and sent him off to Bible college somewhere, and then he went back to Japan and ended up getting on radio and reaching thousands of people, lead them to Christ. But think about the, this fact. One preacher amongst a multitude of preachers told him what was right. Everybody else said, just keep trying to live on the fence, one leg in the world, one leg in the kingdom of God, and let's just hope something good comes out of it. Oh, no, it doesn't work like that. We don't walk the fence. We walk in the kingdom of God. See, that's what's important. We, we live in the kingdom of God. And that flesh doesn't want to hear, give up the things in which it wants to delight because we find it pleasurable. But when God applies that cross and he takes that knife and he starts working, we've got to listen to what he's doing when he's doing surgical work in our hearts and in our lives. So Paul said, Lord, deliver me of this. And then verse 9, here's what the Lord said. Here's the answer. My grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in weakness. Well, that's not the answer he was looking for. He, he, he's praying for deliverance. He's not asking for additional grace. But from God's perspective, grace is what is needed. Grace is what is needed for some of our circumstances. The Lord is saying, you can overcome this with my grace. You can overcome this demon spirit with my grace. But at this particular venture, Paul, no, I am not going to remove that spirit from you. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to wrestle it. You're going to have to do what James chapter 4 uh, says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
As Ephesians says, give no place to the devil. Christianity would be a pretty easy life to live if God took all the devils away. Yeah, wouldn't it be easy to be a Christian if you didn't have to have temptation? I think so. I've told people plenty of times, the marriage covenant is wonderful. It's the people that's the problem. Yeah, if we, if we could all just live with a piece of paper, that would be lovely. But no, it's, it, it's, it, it's the people. And I mean, there are some days when, when I could say my wife is the problem, and then there are other days when my wife would say she's the problem. See? You know how that works. Anybody got a spare bedroom? <laughs> no, of course, in our marriage, it's typically me that's causing, causing the problems and the difficulties. But, but Tiff, she can't go around and pray, Lord, deliver me from Daryl, who is buffeting me. No. The Lord says he gives grace. <laughs> okay, so Paul said three times he prayed. In verse 9, the Lord responded once, and he said, my grace is sufficient. That is true. God gives us what we need to make it through a circumstance. Yeah. I, I've often thought about this. Why is it that 20 people across this nation can pass through circumstances that are exactly like the ones that you're passing through, and you'll have seven or eight of them that'll commit suicide, and you don't. See? I think a lot of it has to do with the manner in which God's grace is supplied in our life and the way we respond to it, because you don't have to have a nervous breakdown. And you don't have to let your life fall apart. You can meditate on the word of God. The scripture says, thou wilt give him perfect peace whose, perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. So the person who meditates on the word of God doesn't have to be feeble-minded and doesn't have to have a broken mind. And if I'm coming through a circumstance where I just lost my job, all my money, I just lost my marriage, and I just lost the closest people in my life, the answer for me is not to sit down, grab a weapon, put it to my temple or to my chest and pull the trigger. That's not the answer. But I do know this, if God's grace is manifested and I respond to that grace, God can give me the strength to overcome the devil the next time he tells me to take my life. We just got to be in the right place where that is taught to us and we learn to overcome. And most churches don't teach Christians to be warriors and to be overcomers and to be valiant and to fight, most people, they're just told, you know, just whatever comes, it just happens. And you just got to, you know, this is what God wants for your life. That's not necessarily the case at all. No. So verse, verse 9 again, his grace suffices for you and for me. Now this grace can be frustrated through our pride. But we have to be willing to acknowledge our weakness in order for that grace to have a channel through which it can flow. If I am walking around thinking, 
I'm such a man of God that there'll never be a time at all where I'll fall in the midst of temptation or that could never happen to me. I'm telling you, that's a trouble, troublesome path to be on. The humble person is the one that can look at someone else's life and as Galatians says, think about yourself if you were in similar circumstances, how would you handle it? Yeah. Yeah, all, all, all the years I've been married to that pretty, pretty little girl, these lips hadn't been on nobody else. No, no. And, and, and pastor hadn't been in bed with anybody else. Uh-uh. But, but I do know this, there, there are a whole lot of devils out there that love to see her or me in bed with somebody else. And, and the way to, to protect ourselves from that is to live humbly under his hand and then walk humbly with our God and say, Father, you know where my weaknesses are. You know where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are. Lord, help put a fence around that. Help me to be strong so that I can walk with you. Yeah, you have to be like that. Otherwise, verse 9 won't work for us. Paul says, I'll gladly boast in my infirmities. That is to say my weaknesses. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. How could this man lay hands on the sick and they be healed? And how was he able to raise up the dead? How could he get stranded on an island at the, at the end of the book of Acts? And all the sick people are brought to him and he lays hands on them and they're healed. Because he knew that the power didn't reside in himself, that it came from someone else and he was yielding to God. And when I listen to people minister and they act like they know every formula and this is exactly what you need to do in order for it to happen, I just sit there and listen. I just think, oh, my goodness, if, you, if, you, if it was that easy, you, you'd have everybody on the planet healed or saved. What we're supposed to do is witness, lay hands on the sick, believe God for the mighty power of the Lord to fall. So that last line of verse 9 is important, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Say that with me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, we need something stronger than we are. We need something at work in us that's super strong. And he continues by telling us in verse 10, So I take pleasure in infirmities. And reproaches. If people are going to talk about me and laugh at me because of my relationship with Christ, he said, I'm taking pleasure in that. It's like the apostles when they were put in jail and beaten. And they walked away rejoicing, saying that they, they were rejoicing because they suffered shame for the name of Jesus. Paul said, in necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, all of these things that come because of my relationship with him, I take pleasure in them. It's not easy. But we should do that. And he said, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Well, that's, that's what we all want. I, I don't want any of us to be weak. Uh, we live in a society right now where I honestly believe we're producing very weak young people, which are producing even weaker, older people. And I can give the illustration like this. 150 years ago, 1870s and so, when people came out here to homestead, you, you had to be pretty tough to last 
You, you just, if, if, if you were coming out here looking for an easy life, there's nothing going to be easy out here. Folks coming out here in covered wagons in a world where there are hardly any trees at all, and they got a little promise. A little promissory note basically says if you can last here six years, seven years, ten years on this property, then you can own, own it. And you got folks out here trying to prepare some soil and wanting to plant, hoping that it rains and you have the worst kind of winters you can possibly think of folks in sod houses and dugouts and everything else but yet you had one generation after another that kept living kept surviving and did it without complaining they weren't the happiest people because whenever you look at the old pictures of them you, you can see where it's 115 degrees outside they all got four and five piece suits on nobody's ever smiling you know, they said, take the picture, it's hot out here. But they lived. But I've wondered, when, when Tiffany and I have driven through all these roads, I mean, all the years we've been out here, now it's been more than a million miles we've put on vehicles, driving out here just in ministry, you know. I said, I wonder how many babies in that field right there have been buried in the past. Yeah, corn coming up now, see. I wonder how many farming accidents were there where there's a, a mama or a brother that died and their body is planted out there and the dust of the earth is not producing these soybeans that are coming up. I bet you has been a lot of them. And, and these people didn't have air conditioning, television, or radio. But you see people today, I mean, they're just about ready to fall apart if they don't have that telephone. See? Uh, Tiffany and I, we were talking about this one time over in Africa. Uh, uh, actually, one of our kids down in the other church was telling us about this. She's from Africa, and she said, growing up as I did over in Nigeria, she said, our tribes and stuff have difficult life over there, and people got to walk a long ways to go to school, got to deal with wild animals and everything like that. But you do what you can to survive. And we've been out there in that world and met some of them kids that are now adults that had to grow up walking six miles through the bush just to try to get a third grade education or so. But they lived, they survived. No suicide over there amongst those tribes, those kids. Nobody's taking their lives. But yet over here, you get five kids that tease somebody on Facebook or on some social media, then we'll have a child hanging themselves. We'll have people falling apart. There's something in our culture now that we're putting in the young generation that is not producing the kind of stability necessary for people to be able to overcome the devil. Yeah, there's just something there. And God wants us to see that if we're going to be overcomers, we need the grace of God, but we also got to have some kind of fortitude inside of us to let us know we're strong enough to do this if we're in God. We don't have to be intimidated. So Paul, in the end, says, I've become a fool in boasting, but you've compelled me. I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest of apostles, though I be nothing. He said, Peter isn't better than me. He said, Matthew and, and them, they aren't any better than me. God called me to be an apostle just like he, he called them. I'm not anything, though, but I'm still not anywhere behind them. So as a preacher, then, we should, I never feel like somebody's better than I am because they have a large church, a mega church, or anything. Who cares? 
The answer is, am I being obedient to what God has called me to be and what he's called me to do? And you as a Christian should never be jealous of some other Christian because they're no closer to God than you are. They're no better than you are in the kingdom of God. The Lord wants you to understand that all of us are nothing. And the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's not tilted in any direction. We're all the same in the presence of God. But a man that could say everything that he said could go on and say in verse 12, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you, patience, signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle. He was not intimidated by any of the twelve. And he was not intimidated by the ones who earlier in the chapters before said, we don't even believe you're an apostle. Paul said, even if you don't believe I'm an apostle, I'm an apostle to you folks there in Corinth. Yeah. If... If I go to different places to minister and these folks introduce me, they introduce me in a lot of different ways, a lot of different titles and all that kind of a, kind of a thing. But I always tell folks, just call me Brother Darrell. Brother Darrell. They say, why you want us to call you that? I said, well, number one, brother signifies relationship. And I said, number two, Darrell is what my mother named me. That's what she named me. Not careful, you get caught up in these titles, and I've met plenty of people. They want to be called apostle so-and-so, prophet so-and-so, all these different things. But the signs aren't there very often. See, People love titles. They get caught up in that. But if we walk with God and let him do what he wants to do in all of us, then wonderful things can happen. You know, I, I don't have any doubt about that. All the years we've been here preaching Christ, telling folks about the king, working alongside you, making sure we got the gospel to as many folks as possible. You, you realize there are very few full gospel churches in this area that when they put together special meetings like we do, can pack it out as we do. People come from everywhere, different churches and everything. That has everything to do with the testimony in here and with our relationships with other people. Because we, we see them come from every direction. A Bible study down over there in Hebron, we got people probably from five or six different churches that comes out there just for that Bible study to hear what we have to say about, about the king. But at no time have we ever, ever got puffed up and proudful and prideful thinking, oh my goodness, there's nobody else around here telling folks about Jesus but us. Absolutely not. Our, our prayer is, God, wherever the truth of the gospel is preached, we pray you promote that church, promote that preacher. But where the false gospel is preached, close the doors because we know it's a misrepresentation of who you are. Yeah, no sense in having that. I don't want the Lord to look at our church and say, you folks have left your first love. No, no, no. First love. Want to wanna hold on to that. You still love me after all these years? See? First love. See that? This, hold on to the first I hope I was her first love. If, if I wasn't, she better tell me I was. Yeah, it's important to know that. Yeah. But God's good. Praise God. God's good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We honor you tonight because we know that Paul spoke about those visions and dreams, but he also told us about the necessity of being humble. So God, help each one of us to walk humbly with you, that we can be promoted and that we could prosper in your grace. Lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, 
Amen. Amen.